The Early Way In Podcast is back, and this week we're breaking down UFC 266, where we have two titles on the line. First up is Valentina looking to make her sixth defense of her women's flyweight title, taking on Lauren Murphy. In the main event, it's the featherweight strap-up for grabs, where we see Alexander Volkanovsky looking to bury the animosity that built up on Tough with Brian Ortega. You can't leave out the return of Nick Diaz after six years. Saturday is going to be an outstanding pay-per-view. We're slated for 14 fights. Make sure to stick around for the whole time to catch our bets and predictions for each one of those. You're stuck with me uh, this week. Ty is out of town. Somehow weaseled his way out of wearing that casual cap on camera again, so I'm going to toss a picture up for you guys real fast. Um, And next week, I'm actually going to be out of town myself, so you're going to be stuck with Ty. We're always going to be transparent, um, as always, um, about how we did last week, and we came up pretty short. We finished 4.33 units in the hole. Um, and didn't really start off very good for us. We like to bet on that first fight of the night, as always. And a little disappointed. We played some juice on Emily Whitmire, but, man, we did think she was a side, and everything was going exactly how we thought it would. And, um, you know, should have knocked on some wood, man. Hannah Goldie, armbar from guard, last thing I saw coming. And next up, we took a shot on Impa, um, as we saw, you know, maybe he is the one that's the better prospect, the one that's improving. And, man, just didn't wear shots very well uh, down at welterweight. And Carlson Harris, again, uh, proving to look really good. Then we had Martel Jackson, man. We took him inside the distance. It started to get a little mushy as the week got on, which we didn't like. And four knockdowns later, we still couldn't get that. But finally, we caught a little break, man, in the Raquel Pennington fight. And we we felt like she was the good vet, you know, that was going to be able to do exactly what she did there. And she looked good. Um, glad we got to bet on Raquel there, but the next one pains me, man. Um, Tony Gravely, a play that we beat the line on. We did our job, and Tony Gravely just didn't do his. He looked good round one, put Manus away. Thought he put Manus away, but nothing new for Manus to be saved by the bell and come back yet again. So finished 4.33 units down in the hole. Haven't been on the track that we wanted to recently, but we've been nailing pay-per-views really good, man, and we're excited to jump into this one here. First fight of the night, we see Omar Morales, who's 11-1, taking on Jonathan Pierce, who's 10-4. We're in the men's featherweight division here for this one. With Omar, he's finishing things up at Sanford MMA again, and this is going to be his third fight down at 145. The scales have not been a single issue for him yet, and come fight night, man, the guy really fills out well for the division. His only pro loss is his first fight down at featherweight where he took on Giga Chikadze, and, you know, takes the fight um, the full 15 minutes, and, you know, I know he loses it, but... It's a loss that's not aging poorly. You know, you see Gig go out there and finish guys like Edson Barboza inside the distance. And to be able to go the full three rounds after seeing the improvements that Gig was making, it's got to be a confidence booster um, for Omar Morales. He did get a bounce back win over Shane Young. Boxing looked really, really good. He's got a good, um, really good right hand, left hook. Got a really hard calf kick that I think is going to be extremely important here in this fight. And he looks real strong in the clinch. You saw um, Shane Young get deep against the cage with some of those takedown attempts. And Omar's, um, you know, defense looks sound, was able to fight those off. Um, he's got a good knee up the middle that he likes to try to time when guys land that takedown. So there's a few weapons here that I think are going to be pretty useful against Jonathan Pierce, who was supposed to fight back in May against Mowgli Benitez, where Mowgli's coming down to 145, but, but botches the weight cut and misses. And Pierce doesn't accept the fight, and... I, I get it. It's um, probably the smartest move for your career, but you're there ready. You've had a long camp. I don't want to say that I've necessarily maybe lost some respect for Jonathan Pierce, but I've seen fighters take that fight time and time again. You're getting a cut of the, the purse of your opponent. That's just kind of what I'm getting at, man, is 
I think a lot of fighters still take that fight. He is training out of Fight Ready, which is a very good gym that you like to see. They get their fighters in great shape, and it's a very influential gym. Um, um, when you um, look at a lot of Twitter cappers and stuff trying to back Jonathan uh, Pierce here, he's a Tennessee boy, so I definitely love to jump on that board any chance I get, but I just, man, I'm, I'm not really convinced this is a spot to do so here. He can switch stances. He's got a good uh, right hand, a good front kick up the middle, but ideally he's going to look to get this fight to the mat, and that's where... I don't necessarily think he's got the offensive wrestling or the strength necessary to do so. And if Omar is able to keep this fight standing, man, I favor Omar heavily on the feet here with his boxing. Yeah. So as I really look into this, I think I've got a comfortable lean on Omar Morales and sitting at a, I believe it is a minus 150. It's something that um, I, I might look at playing on Saturday as I like to have action on that first fight to get us started. The second fight of the night is in our men's welterweight division where we see Matthew Samuelsberger, who's 8-3, taking on Martin Santa, who's 4-2-1. With Samuelsberger, you know, there's not a big gym or nothing that he trains out with. You don't really see a bunch of high-level training partners there with him, but he does have great size for the division. Um, he's fought as high as 205 pounds, has big power. He was a collegiate football player, and you can kind of see it in the way he moves. He has good footwork, looks real athletic. Um, just kind of someone that I've really not been able to get um, on the right side in. You know, actually, I guess it's um, not something to brag about, but took a shot on Carlton Minus in their, um, you know, in his debut. It's a pretty lackluster fight, and we saw Simmelsberger go to the wrestling, you know, to take away the striking of Minus. But I've seen Simmelsberger, you know, TKO'd by a guy with no fights and, and submitted by a guy with a losing record. Um, so it didn't take a lot to want to fade him in, in that debut. The next fight up, you know, um, against Jason Witt. Jason Witt, um, a much tougher task than Carlton Minus, took my shot at fading Samuelsberger again and um, did not go very well where you see Samuelsberger get that timing on those naked leg kicks and it only took the second one for him to land that straight right down the middle. Samuelsberger's power combined with Jason Witt's chin looking back was just um, a bad concoction and a bad bet on my behalf. Um, but when he came up to Chaos Williams, man, I, you know, I was pretty realistic about it. I said, you know, I don't think I'm going over for three this time. I think Simmelsberger is not as good as Chaos. He hasn't fought near the level of Chaos Williams. And a fight that, you know, was going to probably remain on the feet, I had to favor Chaos in. Um, but this is a completely different fight here with Simmelsberger, man. He has got all the tools that he needs to win this fight very, very easily, especially on the feet. He's been twice as active with 10 of his 11 pro fights coming since the last time we saw Martin Sano in the cage. And if you don't know by now, um, you know, Martin Sano really only in the UFC because of Nick Diaz, big-time training partner of his. And he's getting signed off of two losses and a draw. So you definitely got to have some some friends in the UFC if, if, you're, you're, if you're making your debut off a streak like that. Um, and then you look at when the last time he's fallen in, and that's over four and a half years ago. Um, so could he come out here and look like a, just a vastly improved version of himself? Sure. But, man, I, I really, really highly doubt it. From the tape that I've seen on him, he doesn't move very well. He looks slow to me. And I know he's got a win over welterweight, you know, top 10, welterweight, top 15, welterweight Jeff Neal all the way back in 2013. But the guy's still only a purple belt on the mat. I don't really favor Sano anywhere here, man. you got to think he's going to try to get it to the mat to have any type of success. But I think Samuelsberger is going to keep this on the feet. I like Samuelsberger inside the distance, but we have put Samuelsberger in a parlay with somebody later in on the pay-per-view. Real hard for me to see Samuelsberger lose in this fight. Moving up a weight class, we go to the men's middleweight division where we see Nick Maximov, who's 6-0, taking on Carl Roberson, who's 9-4. and 
And Maximov, um, you know, another one of the guys that's training with the Diaz brothers there, but, you know, he has done a whole lot more to deserve this spot than Martin Sano has. He's coming off a contender series victory um, up at heavyweight, where he weighs in at 209 pounds and his opponent 50 pounds heavier than him. But um, opponent really not on his level, man. And Nick goes out there and puts on an absolute wrestling clinic with like 12 minutes of control time. But I personally really would have liked to have seen a finish, man. He had little to zero resistance coming back his way. I would have liked to see some more ground and pound and open up some of those submission attempts. He's fought at light heavyweight before as well and weighing in at 203 pounds. So although on the books it's his first time that he's going to be making that middleweight limit, I'm not really going to go out there and say that I think he has all kind of troubles making the 185-pound limit. The tape that there is out there to watch on, um, on Nick Maximov, man, the guy knows one thing and one thing only, and that's to get the fight to the floor. Um, you know, his striking, I guess it, it has its pros and cons because uh, his striking doesn't look like it's all that developed, but at the same time, you know that he's going to stick to the game plan. You know he doesn't deviate. He knows it works, and he goes to it. Um, and I think that's going to be huge here, man, because anytime he's spent out at striking range with Carl Roberson, I think he's just playing with fire. With Nick, I still consider him a pretty green, real young 23-year-old who, like I said, looks a little bit too one-dimensional for me to, to want to back going forward. And then not only that, I know he goes the full 15 minutes on the contender series, but little to no resistance coming back, man. I think he needed three takedowns, and, and that's all he needed that whole fight. So when he's made the, you know, to get those takedowns repeatedly, when his opponent's working back up to the feet, you know, I, I'm worried that it can cause the gas tank some problems. But I do get it, man, I, 100%. The, the style that Maximov brings into fights is the exact style that we've seen Carl Roberson have problems with in the past with all four of his losses coming by submission. Man, when I really look at who Carl Roberson is getting submitted by, Cesar Fajeda, man, a high-level black belt. Marvin Vittori, Brandon Allen, um, and Glover Teixeira in typical comeback Glover style. I mean, these are high-level MMA grapplers. Something that I just, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I can't put Nick on that level yet. Um, could he potentially be? Yes. But could Carl potentially not be that bad of a wrestler and it just be an unfortunate product of the matchmaking and stuff that he's had in front of him? Um, and, I, and I actually think that I'm probably going to lean that second option there because Nick's done nothing to show me that he is um, on the level of any of those guys I previously mentioned. When you look at Carl Roberson, you know, when he was 6-0, and this guy already had, you know, finishes over Darren Stewart and over Ryan Spann, who we just saw in our main event last week. Um so we've seen a, a much harder level of competition at his um, young career. He's now moved to Glory MMA as well. Um, he seems to be taking the career a whole lot more serious. He's working with James Krause, Julian Marquez, I imagine a whole lot on the wrestling. And on the feet, this guy's a dangerous kickboxer. Spent some time in Glory. Um, he'll tear up the lead legs. He's got a phenomenal um, jab. and He really knows how to use that straight left and that body kick like most southpaws do. So anytime this is on the feet, I, I'm favoring Carl Roberson super, super heavily. I get, man, that there's a world where Nick just goes out here and um, and wrestle fucks him. I get it. But, man, Nick has not shown me that he can do that to a UFC caliber opponent yet. And the people that I've seen Carl Roberson struggle with give up those takedowns, give up that submission to. It is guys that are far, far better than Nicholas Maximov. And you can officially get Carl Roberson at plus 100 on Bet Online. I think that's a spot that I'm looking at, man, and one of the only underdogs I think that I'm going to roll with on Saturday. Back in our women's flyweight division, we have Manon Ferro, who's 7-1, taking on Myra Bueno Silva, who's 7-1-1. One one. 
with Faroe, you know, it's a much tougher um, opponent this time around here with Bueno Silva. A lot tougher than your Victoria Leonardo's, your short notice fill-in, Tabitha Ricci's. But with Faroe, man, do I love what I see from her. I think there is a ton of potential for that girl. And I think she's, man, she has potential to be a legitimate contender one day here. Um, and I think it's going to take a very, very talented wrestler who can negate some of that striking um, t to really beat Manon. And I don't know if that's going to be a factor here in this fight. You know, looking through Silva's historically, she, you know, she's not landed a single takedown, man, in her UFC career. Um, so I don't know if she's going to offer the style that I think it's going to need to beat Moreau. Um, Manon, multiple-time kickboxing champion, man. Finished six of her seven wins inside the distance, which is very um, atypical of a girl. She is a finisher. And on the feet, there is a whole, whole lot to love. She has phenomenal feints. Um, she really has that nice push kick from the side like a lot of karate specialists do. She has good timing on her right hand, and she does a phenomenal job of hiding that head kick. I... It's, it's a little, you know, early, I guess, to compare her to the flyweight champ and Valentina Shevchenko, but I see similarities in the striking and, the you know, just the ferocity that she brings into the cage. Um, and I think Manon Farrow could be a problem going forward. With with Bueno Silva, it looks like her and her partner and Gloria DePaula have kind of split from Shuto, or Shootbox Brazil and are training elsewhere now. I With, with Bueno Silva... I, there's not a lot I really like about her, if I'm going to be honest with you. On the feet, um, it's 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 not a lot of technical uh, stuff. There's not a lot of footwork to it. I, I feel like she just kind of plots forward, tries to cut that cage off, tries to use her size. She slings the big right hand, has the calf kick, and initiates that clinch where she tries to impose that size and will on girls. And I'm just not sure it's going to be the case here with Manon, who's a big flyweight. And then you look back at Silva, I talked about her not landing any takedowns in her UFC career. Man, she's basically the one that's usually found on her back. She's pulled multiple arm bars from guard. So, you know, it's always there. But I don't really see Manone initiating the wrestling here with Silva, primary a brawler, right? So if no one's initiating any type of, you know, takedown attempts here, you 100% you think this fight is going gonna, is gonna to stay standing, and it's a no-brainer who you got to favor if this fight remains on the feet, and, and that's going to be Manone for sure. Am I eager to run and play her money line at minus 250, minus 235, somewhere around there? No, but I do think that Bueno Silva is just a stepping stone to the top of the division for Manone, and I think we're going to continue to see lines like this until she is matched up with you know the top six, top seven of the division, presented like a really good wrestling threat. So I'm going to go Manone for row. I think Silva is extremely tough. I don't think Manone is going to get that finish she's always looking for here. Um, so I'm probably going to lean with her by decision, but I think Manone is a safe parlay piece on Saturday. Next up is an exciting fight in our men's lightweight division where we see Euros Medic, who's 7-0, and taking on Jalen Turner, who's 10-5. and With Euros Medic, he's doing his work out of Kings MMA. He's a phenomenal striker, man, but you always see this guy in the gym working on the wrestling with guys like Benil De Rouge and Marvin Vittori. Um, I know he's working a whole lot on it, but but just like someone we just broke down in Manon Faroe, it's going to take a, a really good wrestler, I think, that, to pose the problems needed to beat um, Euros Medic. Because on the feet, this guy is nasty, man. He's a very good southpaw boxer. His jab is extremely fast. He's got a really good straight left hand down the middle and a good right hook that follows. I think that right hook's going to be the one that spells the spells the end for Jalen on Saturday. But some other weapons Euros has. He's got that knee up the middle. I know we've kind of compared him to Dan Hooker even in the way and he looks, fights, length, everything. But they both throw that knee really good up the middle. 
And similar to his training partner in Giga Kachikadze, Euros loves that left body kick, man, where he can really target that area of the liver. With Euros Medic, it was a guy that, you know, Tyler and I were super, super high on after the Contender Series. Really, really looking forward for him to make his debut. I mean, he got matched up against Alon Cruz, and he was like a minus 185, 200 favorite. Um, we were, we laid off, and, and we shouldn't have, basically, is what I'm getting at. But we knew he was inexperienced. Um, we knew that the talent level at Alaskan FC was not all that great, and he had not shown us anything outside of the first round, and he still hasn't. But I don't think Euros Medic is a bad fighter, man. I, I think he could get that rep of the Alaskan FC um, and the bad competition, but I think Euros could prove to be one of the better fighters that we actually see come from that organization. Um, I'm really tempted to pull the trigger on him as he is not a significant favorite here on Saturday. With Jalen Turner, though, he's really found his groove, man. He's pieced together three of uh, his last four. He's starting to figure out how to use that length and that range that he has at the division. Um, but when I really look at who he's using this against, Callan Potter, Josh Kulabal, and Brock Weaver, man, you know, it's it's really hard to take a whole lot from, from you beating very, very low-level talent that you have all the physical advantages, all the athletic advantages that one could want in a fight. When you see him, you know, against Matt Provola, he's just flat-out out-wrestled. He doesn't have the strength or the wrestling to keep up with someone like that. Um, so I think these guys are pretty similar is what I'm getting at here. They both have big frames for the division. They're both going to have problems when they run into the wrestlers, but when the fight stays on the feet, they both get to thrive. So I know it's kind of a recurring theme here that I'm, you know, but I got to ask myself, if this fight does stay on the feet like I think it does, who do I favor? And I think I favor Euros Medic here, man. I think he's a more technical and talented one. They're both southpaws. You don't typically see two southpaws fight each other. It's a pretty rare occurrence. So, you know, a lot of their big weapons are negated. So who's the more polished? Who's the more creative fighter and boxer? And I got to go with Euros Medic here and, then again, you know, we saw Euros Medic just fight someone in a long cruise who was his size and could replicate that same um, you know, length and reach. And Jalen Turner has yet to receive that in the lightweight division. And then he got a touch on the part where you've seen Jalen Turner TKO'd three times on the feet. I think Euros is going to find those openings, man. I really do. And um, the more I break it down, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident Euros Medic here. So you don't have to pay a whole bunch for his money line. It's sitting around a minus 120, so don't be greedy. Take that. But, man, if you're going to stab that first-round TKO around plus 400, it's just asking to be hit with every single one of his wins coming by first-round TKO. Um, and if he and if he gets the win outside, um, you know, you, you're mature about it and you got the money line there as well. But I, I don't hate either one of those plays. I think if you're going to play Jalen Turner and you side with him, He's got a dangerous round one that he's got to get out of, and I think you're probably going to get a a plus mon- a real plus money, better price tag on him when he's sitting on the scale going into round two. We're in our women's flyweight division again, where we see Roxanne Montefiore, who's 25 and 18, taking on Talia Santos, who's 17 and one. And with Roxy, she trained out of Syndicate MMA. There's a lot of good girls there for her to get work in constantly. I could never ever seem to get on the right side of Roxy. She pulls off massive upsets when I fade her, and when I go to stab one on her as a big underdog, she just looks absolutely awful. Um, her last couple wins that you look back, she's alternated wins and losses, and apparently she'd do a win here, but man, I just don't, I don't really agree with it. And you look at the last couple wins, like I was getting into in 2019, she got a win over Antonina Shevchenko, and it's like, 
it's a split decision, and that is a match made in heaven for Roxy. I've seen Antonina gra- you know, outgrappled by far worse wrestlers, um, and that that is a fight Roxy uh, should win. Go to the Barber fight, and everybody knows that Barber's ACL was torn in that fight. And then, you know, the KGB fight. KGB Lee is, is just a so-so fighter, and it's probably Roxanne's best win of her career if you really want to look at it. And I think if you if you rerun all those fights back right now, significant chance Roxanne does not come away victorious, um, if you want my honest opinion there. In the last one, she was bragging a whole bunch about her strength and conditioning ahead of that Arujo fight. She couldn't wait to showcase it. And my opinion, I think she looked slower um, than she ever had, man. I felt like the knees looked weak. The five miles were catching up on her. She just wasn't moving well. Couldn't get the head off center. Um, just looked really, really slow, man, and getting out-wrestled, which is something that she typically doesn't do. I just think at 38 years old, man, it's starting to catch up with her, and she's just become a stepping stone for a lot of these girls that are that are going to be breaking into the top 10. With Talia Santos, the girl gets a lot of flack, as she should, um, you know, for her regional um, resume there, but it's it's not atypical of the women's Brazilian scene. There is, is a lot of Brazilian females coming to the OC with a pretty padded record, but she's 14-0 going into her Contender Series bout, and those 14 opponents have a combined record of 7-11. and So she is fighting very, very inexperienced girls. Now she's getting the most experienced girl in, in probably women's MMA history. Um, and then a lot of people are going to look at that uh, Barella fight and, and draw comparisons to how Roxy might be able to get on top and, and ride this fight out. But I thought, you know, we're talking about a girl in Talia Santos in her debut, Bright Lights, um, I give people a lot of pass sometimes in their debut. We go, we watch her go back out against Molly McCann and Jillian Robertson and dominate with the wrestling. So I think she, man, I think she can compete with this version of Roxy on the feet. She's so strong on the clinch, good trips. And when she's got on top of you, she's very heavy with nasty ground and pound. Like I said, we saw Arujo have success with the grappling, who's a much, um, you know, she's only like five foot three, five foot four, very short girl, um, was able to, to ride Roxanne out. So I'm not counting it out that Santos can have success with the wrestling either. And we saw her stay safe from the arm bars of Jillian Robertson, I think that much be- who has much better jiu-jitsu off her back than Roxanne does. Hands of Talia Santos, going to be way too fast. She is going to slam that calf kick home into Roxanne so bad into those bad knees with the knee braces on there. The more I dig into it, man the line might be appropriate. I have parlayed Talia Santos. I think she probably goes out there and wins an easy 30-27. But man, there's going to be girls that are going to start coming in here and putting Roxy away sooner or later. I think she's going to see a pretty bad dip off of her career when it is time for her to go. I'm going to side with the big favorite, man. Um, Yeah, this big of a plus money doesn't really tip me on Roxanne. So I'm going to go with Talia Santos and um, you know, really the only way to play her, I think, is going to be to put her in a parlay. First set of big boys of the night. We're in our heavyweight division where we see the number seven ranked Shamil Abdurmakov, who's 20-5, and five, taking on the number 10, Chris Dawkins, who's 11-3. and three. The fight was scheduled a couple times now, I do believe. Um, keep having to get pushed back there um, due to some issues with Shamil and stuff. But it's extended in what's almost a two-year layoff there for Shamil. And he's not the most active on social media, but... Do believe he's training over there in Russia. Um, I was looking through the social media and at his gym where you know the gym Ty and I trained at. Got a picture of Elio Gracie right there in the center of the center of the wall. But where Shamil's at, got a big old picture of Vladimir Putin. So I definitely think he's over there in Russia here 
He's probably got the combat Sambo style. He's going to look to mix in those takedowns, but he's not necessarily lost on the feet. Um, he does got a massive left hook and a big uh, overhand right, but it's a lot of feints, level changes. Um, his um, threat of grappling is, is really what opens up um, his hands. He's a deceptively fast heavyweight, too. Moves pretty well, and he can easily go the full 15 minutes, which we've seen a couple different times. I know his last loss to Curtis Blades. You know, Curtis Blades is... The wrestling's a game changer in that division, and when he gets on top of you, you know, you're done for. But Shamil looked sharp against Marcin Tiberio the fight before that, and, and Tiberio's looked very, very good as of late. With Chris Dawkins, you know, he's one of the brighter prospects that the division has right now, and he's storming his way through it. It's a black belt out of Martinez BJJ, um, and he's been training to fight Nascimento and, uh, you know, Alexei Olenek in the past, so I do believe grappling has been a, a focus on a lot of camps in the past, which would be useful coming in here um, against Shamil. But it's really on the feet where Dawkins has, has really shined. His boxing has looked very sharp, very crisp. He moves extremely well for a heavyweight. He's light on his feet, similar to like a Tom Aspinall or something. He's got a massive speed advantage with his hands. When they're in tight, he can land two or three of his own punches. Good knees in the clinch, exits with elbows. And when he's at range, he's got a really good lead left hook, um, and that right hand is money. With this, Shamil's a big pressure fighter, and I think the way Chris Dawkins has those calf kicks and those teep kicks up the middle, it's the best way to stop someone from, from really coming forward. Um, it's the best way to stop a wrestler who's extremely heavy on that lead leg in the wrestling stance. So I'm going to side with Chris Dawkins here. Um, I'm not eager to lay minus 190 or minus 200 what it's sitting at at a lot of places now i'm a little hesitant on that um because each each fight for chris is, is is his hardest one yet and um what makes me i guess lean it a little bit more is that layoff of shamil he's he's you know two years out of the cage where chris Dawkins, i believe has really really found that groove and he's kind of that new age of heavyweights that just moves so much um, better than the uh, the older ones and his hands are so much faster so i'm going to go with chris Dawkins. More than likely, Chris Dawkins by TKO inside the distance. Back in the men's lightweight division, where we see Dan Hooker, who's 20 and 10, taking on Nasrad Hackpress, who's 13 and 3. With Dan Hooker typically out of the city kickboxing um, gym, but I know Australia is pretty crazy right now, and I don't really know what Dan Hooker's training situation has looked at looked like. And then you combine it with the visa issues that he's just got this week, that now he's got to fly over here, get adjusted, make weight. Not the, really the circumstances I like, you know, to, to back a fighter with some of my money. Um, with Dan Hooker, it really did. It took the silly loss to Jason Knight to get him to move up to 155. But since moving up to 155, this guy's been a walking highlight, really. He's got nasty KOs over Jim Miller and Ross Pearson with that knee that he loves to lead with up the middle. Beautiful left hook finish over Gilbert Burns. The treats, the just dog fights with Edson Barboza and Paul Felder and Dustin Poirier. Dan Hooker is flat out, you know, just never in a boring fight. But all that damage that he takes in those fights, you knew it was going to cost him um, sooner or later when he ran into someone with massive power, and it did against Michael Chandler. Um, and not to mention that, you know, Dan's got a, a long torso. Um, he's open to all the body shots, man. You know, you saw Edson Barboza just damage the body and eventually drop him with one. And you saw uh, Chandler set up that left hook by repeatedly going to the body with the right hand. Poirier and Felder both slowed Hooker down badly with the body shots. And then it's going to open up the head shots where Dan has really not, not already got the best striking defense. Um, 
It's a tough fight, man. On the side of Nazareth, you know, he's got his own set of issues going into this one with as well with the with the passing of his mother last week and issues getting his visa as well. So, you know, my thoughts go out to him. But I'm not really eager to bet this guy even at plus money either as I don't feel like he's going to perform his best. He's a dangerous southpaw. He's got a nasty straight left hand, a really good body kick. He likes to pressure you back and, you know, force those striking exchanges where he feels like he's really comfortable and best at. But getting in those striking exchanges, those firefights with someone like Hooker, I just think that's a game that you don't really want to play. And with Nazrat, you know, with Hooker, I think you need lights-out power to, to put Hooker away because he's going to be there the full 15 minutes. And I know the Joaquin Silva fight has kind of has kind of fooled people into thinking Nazrat's just this power puncher, and I don't think he is, man. You know, sure, he's finishing fighters with no fights over in Germany, and we love MMA, but when he's came over to the UFC, the Joaquin Silva finishes the only one in his seven UFC fights, but he's got great volume, so I don't just want to knock him. He's going to make a case for himself on the scorecards. You see him land 99 significant strikes against Di Casey, 124 against the Bugatti, 104 against Alex Munoz, and then 99 against Rafa Garcia again. Um, so I don't think what I'm getting at is I don't think he's got the power to put Dan Hooker away. He's got the volume to make it interesting on the scorecards, but I don't I don't think you want to get in that volume firefight with with Dan Hooker, man, and with both of them having having the out of octagon issues. 100% the best play is, is to pass. But if I'm correct, it stays on the feet, man. And, and that's where I favored the skills, the experience, the toughness of Hooker. And to see that line continuing to come down to now minus 145, Dan Hooker might not be a bad play, man, if this fight stays together. And I feel like that line's only going to get better. So I'm going to side with Dan Hooker. But again, I'm 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 not eager to play either one of these guys with the issues they're dealing with outside of the cage right now. In our prelim main event, we're in the men's bantamweight division, where we see Magic Marlon Marais, who's 23-8-1, taking on Marab Devavishvili, who's 13-1. With Marab, he's out of Longo MMA, gets a lot of work in with the bantamweight champ and now Jermaine Sterling. And with this guy, you know his UFC career starts off. Um, Pretty much not how he'd like, man. You know, he, he starts off 0-2 in some pretty weird circumstances. He completely outstrikes, completely outwrestles Frankie Science, and somehow loses that decision. And then the next one, even weirder, man. You know, he, he beats Ricky Simone, but the end of round three, he's deep in a mounted guillotine. The final bell, you know, calls, but then the the ref basically calls the fight after that when Marab's kind of just laying there, catching his breath and stuff on the ground. Um, easily one of the weirdest endings to fight. Um, but, man, you know, got to get the facts straight, and Marib was about to win a decision there and very well potentially should be 8-0 in the UFC right now. This guy's got phenomenal leg kicks, throws some spinning techniques every now and then, but the game plan is to always come forward, break you down with the pressure and the chain wrestling, and he's he's one of the best to do it, man. He lands over seven takedowns per 15 minutes, and through his first eight fights, this guy's landed 59 takedowns. It's the most, you know, by far. You see elite wrestlers like Khabib only landing 39. Colby landing 41. Arab gives his opponents zero time to breathe, and I think that is a great, great style for someone who's having to fight Magic Marlon Marais, who likes to play that range game, who likes to play that kicking game. Marlon, or uh, Arab's just not going to give him time to do so. We've seen Marab take on some very talented wrestlers, D1 wrestlers, and Simone, Sainz, 
and Stamen, and they've not been able to stop the wrestling. So I'm not, I can't say Marlon's going to be able to either. But at the same time, Marlon is by far the best competition Marib's fault. He's by far um, the better, best striker that he's fought. With Marlon, he's out of American Top Team, um, and he also works some with Frankie Edgar and Mark Henry there. He's a very, very good kickboxer. The best striker, like I said, Marib's fault to date. And if this fight um, does remain on the feet, I, I favor Marlon heavy, heavy here. He's got a nice calf kick, which I've talked about can be a big issue for wrestlers who are heavy on that lead leg. But again, I just don't know how much he's able to get that kicking game off with someone who's got the pressure of Marab. Marab is going to put him on his back foot the whole fight. Um, he's fought, yeah, Marlon's fought better competition. He's TKO'd the champ with a knee on a takedown entry, which I think is noteworthy here with Marab's style. But something just doesn't doesn't look there, doesn't look right for me and Marlon anymore. I, I know it's Sanhagen. I know it's Font. I know it's Henry Cejudo. But he just fades too quickly, man. And I don't know if it's the weight cut, the cardio, what it is. But he fades too quickly, and it's against guys who are not wrestling him. Um, those guys just have good forward pressure. They just make Marlon, you know, be on his back foot. And I think that's something Marab does better than all three of the guys I just mentioned. I am going to go Marab, 30-27 decision, 29-28. He can't finish a happy meal. He ain't finishing Marlon on Saturday. Um, Tyler likes Marlon inside the distance at plus 400, and if Marlon gets it done, it's 100% going to be inside the distance. I see a lot of value on that as well. I haven't hit it myself as I'm siding with Marab, but yeah, man, it's a tough one. It really is a tough one. I'm going to go with Marab. I understand if you put him in a parlay. It's a wrestler versus striker with a very, very talented wrestler. I'm going to side with you as well with Marab, but man, Marlon's got his back up against the wall and needs a very good performance. He's um, taking a little bit of a step down in competition as well. This is a great fight for the prelim main event. Um, in the business of making picks, though, so I'm going to go with Marab. Kicking off the main card, we're in the women's flyweight division again where we see Jessica Andrade, who's 21-9, and taking on Cynthia Calvillo, who's 9-2-1. and With Jessica Andrade, she is coming off a loss to the champion Valentina Shevchenko, so I'm always... Very curious to see how fighters perform after losing that title opportunity. But Jessica, you know, in particular as well, because this is her third, um, you know, weight division that she's been in. And, you know, coming up short for the title in your third division, there's not a lot left there for Jessica besides cleaning out contenders until they really think that she's, you know, worthy of another title shot. Um, when you look at the way Shevchenko just beat Jessica Andrade by out grappling, by out wrestling her, getting on top of her. I guess it's particularly interesting in here because that's the type of style that Cynthia Calvillo usually brings into a fight. But personally, I think Jessica, I'm sorry, I think um, Valentina Shevchenko is on a completely different level than Cynthia Calvillo and have, will have twice the amount of success Cynthia will getting this fight to the mat. Jessica turns 30 on Saturday while she's in the cage, which is pretty crazy to think about. She's so much experience at the higher level. Um, multiple world champions on the resume. She's just seen a level of this game that Cynthia's yet to see. Um, and and I really um, I think this is the best division for Jessica, man. I, I'm glad she finally made the move here. I think she's going to perform the best. She closes distance, John Lineker style, winging hooks at you, leads to the body to drop your hands before coming up up top. She's extremely strong on the clinch and a pretty underrated wrestler, although um, I don't think she's probably going to play around um, and mess with Cynthia's guard too much. With Cynthia, she's out of um, Extreme Couture. 
And like previously mentioned, I don't think she's going to be near as strong as Val or have near the success getting this fight to the mat. You know, she's an extra weight herself and much better suited for that. I just don't think she has the proper nutritionist, strength and conditioning, diet, coaches, something that you need because she's she's made that weight multiple times. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that that's the weight class that she needs to be at. She's one of these girls that I think she's a black belt on the mat, but Jiu-Jitsu is really about all I've seen for Cynthia Calvillo. She really hasn't made any type of improvements in the striking to close that gap. Um, she really struggled to close the distance against Chukagian, where we've seen Jessica Andrade close the distance and land those body shots a couple times and, and put Chuk away. And then she lacks a lot of that offensive wrestling that I think, and some of the strength as well at flyweight, that's going to take to get the fights down to the map where she really wants them. There's not a lot for Cynthia Calvillo that jumps off the page for me. Um... I just keep thinking back to how I got Chukagian at plus 200 against her, and Chuk will continue to make me money to this day. Um, but yeah, back to this fight. She's not competed at the level Jessica has. I don't think she's as good as Jessica, man. I'm just going to flat out say it. I, th- I favor Jessica just about everywhere. I think Jessica is a very, very firm parlay piece. I like her here, um, and I do believe we have already released a parlay with Jessica Andrade in it on Saturday. Back in the heavyweight division, we see Curtis Blades, who's 14-3, and taking on Jarzinho Rosenstroik, who's 12-2. and With Curtis Blades, he comes from us out of team elevation. He trains and lives in high altitude, and it's very, very smart of him to do so. I think um, training in elevation, one of the best things that you can do um, for the type of style that um, Curtis likes to implement as a heavyweight. It's going to take a really good gas tank for or above-average uh, gas tank for a heavyweight in order to implement that. We have seen it tested a little bit, um, you know, in the Volkov fight, but Volkov made him work a ton by repeatedly getting back to the feet, and it was a five-round fight, um, so I don't necessarily think Curtis's cardio issues are going to have any effect here at all. Um, Looking at his last fight against Derek Lewis and seeing him viciously get knocked out, um, I get it. I get why it's a little concerning going to back him here as a massive, huge favorite again. Lewis is a very one-dimensional striker, and Rosenstroik, very one-dimensional as a striker, but he's got twice the footwork, um, twice the kickboxing. He can set those uh, punches up much better than Derek Lewis can. And, you know, I'm no high-level wrestler to be able to critique Curtis Blades, but the takedown entry against Derek Lewis it was very, very sloppy. I don't know if it was a double, single, whatever it was, but he put his head right into the power side. He goes cross-body with it right into the uppercut of uh, Derek Lewis. We've seen time and time again, short head on the outside single, DC, um, plenty of people do it very well. Been able to drag Derek Lewis right down to the mat, completely avoid that power side, and end up in a very dominant position. So I say all that, you know, to kind of knock Curtis Blades to say, I think he mauls Jarzinho Rosenstroik on Saturday here. I, you know, we see the striking improvements for Curtis, but um, Curtis is smart when he needs to be, man. I expect him to take this fight down to the mat early and get Jarzinho out of there. Jarzinho Rosenstroik, typically a training at American top team with a slew of heavyweights, but when you look online, he looks to have done a lot of this camp at a boxing gym in Miami. And I got to ask myself why, you know, why do you why do you do that? You know, you're you got to be game planning for a wrestler. Why are you not at American top team with King Mo, with Juan Espino, with other big heavyweights getting those wrestling rounds in instead of boxing rounds in? Um I didn't like that when I looked online. For Jarzinho, very extensive kickboxing background. I think some odd 100 fights. He's got really good hand speed. 
very unique angles that he throws his punches at as well, and he can disrupt your timing with that inside leg kick that he's got. And the dude's got fight-ending power, which seems to be Curtis's kryptonite. Um, outside of Jarzino Rosenstroik's two losses to the current light, um, to the current heavyweight champions, he's gotten a knockdown in every single one of his fights. So he finds those openings, and a lot of guys don't seem to be able to take that power. But what Jarzino, you know, what he does that I don't like is he just doesn't throw, man. Besides the leg kicks, he has a real tendency to not let his hands go to back up against the fence, and I think it's because of that takedown threat. I don't think he's he I I, I don't think he's comfortable on the mat whatsoever I am with him backing up I think it's going to be pretty easy for Curtis to get that takedown that he wants I think Curtis once he gets him down to the mat finishes him that round with a head and arm choke we're going to see Curtis Blades work his way to mount put him away with ground and pound the elbows that he likes I'm big on Curtis Blades here man but the reserve is there seeing the power being his kryptonite seeing him knocked out by pretty I guess by by strikers with big power, but not a lot of technique. Lewis um, and Francis don't have a lot of technique, where Jarzinho has double the technique, and he still has that power as well. So it's enough that I can't. I think it's kept me and Tyler off of Curtis Blades on Saturday. But yeah, I'm going to go with Curtis Blades to win inside the distance here. Moving on, we're in the men's welterweight division, where we see Robbie Lawler, who's 28 and 15, taking on Nick Diaz, who's 26 and 9. We're going to put the casual cap on the line next week on this fight. I'm going to rock with Robbie Lawler. Ty's going to take the 209. Um, Stockton Ray's Nick Diaz. With Robbie Lawler, he's finishing everything up at Sanford MMA like usual. In this fight particular, it's a rematch all the way back from 2004, 17 years in the making, where the first time Nick Diaz got the best of Robbie, you know, um, talking a little bit of shit, found the opening, popped his jab in there, and, and set Robbie down with a jab. And something to note, that was one of only two times Robbie has ever been knocked out in his career. The second time being to Tyron Woodley, which I've always said is a product of just the back-to-back wars that he went through with, with Johnny Hendricks and with um, Carlos Condon and with Roy McDonald. Um, just a perfect opportunity for the power of Tyron Woodley to capitalize there. Neither one of these guys are in their prime anymore, but I am so pumped for this fight, man. I, I really, really am. During his reign as welterweight champion, it was one of the best times in the UFC, man. Um, Robbie ruled that division and was putting on just killer fight after killer fight for us. I remember Ty and I were coming home from college on the weekends to watch Robbie Lawler's fights with all of our buddies. It's As I'm watching Robbie Lawler fights this week, it just brings back some great memories for me, man. He's He's got a really good straight left hand, a really good jab, good leg kicks. I th- like Dustin Poirier, I think this guy's a right-handed southpaw. He loves to lead with that check right hook, and that's where it seems to have all the power and during his prime, his takedown defense was absolutely on point. He was so quick to sprawl, could keep these fights standing where he just broke guys and broke their will on the feet. But lately, the sport has not been too kind to Robbie Lawler. Something like he's lost four in a row, 14 straight rounds. But it has been against the top talent of the welterweight division, um, all while Nick has been pretty much sidelined or has been sidelined. With Nick Diaz, you know, I'll be honest, um, I never thought that starting this podcast we'd get to break down a Nick Diaz fight. He's been suspended for five years by the Nevada Athletic or Nevada State Athletic Commission for marijuana, which they don't even test for anymore, which is should be a crime in itself. Um, but he's been out for over six and a half years, man, and now at 38 years old, trying to come back. Um, 
we've seen the game pass by a whole lot of people, but one thing's for sure is, um, you know, Nick and Nate are very active, and, and Nick has not let himself get out of shape whatsoever. But looking online, you can tell his priorities. They did get away from fighting for a little bit, um, and he's probably only going to be back for big-time money fights and stuff like his brother. He's got phenomenal boxing, good cardio, and he's a black belt on the mat, but he likes some of the wrestling, um, you know, to get those fights down to the mat. He typically, you know, like his brother, typically gets taken down and then finds those submissions off his back. And he doesn't have a whole bunch of power in his hands, but what he doesn't like, or what he doesn't have in power, he does make up for in volume and pressure. He gets in your face, he puts you up against the fence, and he lets his hands go. He loves to dig that right hook to the body. It reminds me a whole lot of the way Max Holloway fights. They know they're not going to go out there and land that KO blow, but they know that they can put you on that fence repeatedly, just uh, dig to the body, um, throw 200 strikes a fight, and um, a lot of guys, they just can't keep up that pace. They can't be put on their back foot that much, and they start to wilt under that pressure and pace. And we know we saw Robbie Lawler particularly kind of get backed up by RDA and let those 20-punch combinations come off. So that does worry me a little bit against Nick here, but... Nick's one, either going to come out here and look phenomenal, or two, he's going to come out here and look like absolute shit. I'm going to go with looking like absolute shit off a six-year layoff. This fight is five rounds, which typically going to favor a Diaz, but everybody knows, man, if this is two and two, going into that fifth round, Robbie Lawler does not quit on himself, and Robbie Lawler does not lose a fifth round. So I'm going to go with Robbie Lawler. I'm going to let Tyler take Nick Diaz. Um, we're going to let the casual cap be on the best fight of the night here on Saturday. Our co-main event of the evening is in our women's flyweight division where we see Valentina Shevchenko, who's 21-3, and taking on Lauren Murphy, who's 15-4. and It's the first title fight of the night where we see Valentina looking to make her sixth defense of her flyweight belt. She's a Tiger Muay Thai product, but she does a whole lot of training now out of Las Vegas, and it looks like Brandon Moreno has been there the last couple weeks helping her out. Um, with Valentina, man, she is just a stone-cold killer. She is a multiple-time Muay Thai um, world champion, but she looks to be just as good of a wrestler. Um, looking at her on my end, it is very, very hard to find holes in Valentina's game. She always comes in in phenomenal shape. She can go five rounds, no problem. And she's so, so patient. She doesn't force anything. She takes what her opponents to give her. She's okay with racking up points until she finds those openings. And outside of that single round with Jennifer Maya, she's never been in any kind of trouble or any kind of danger. When she does get in her flow, it could be a terror for girls. She flows so well, and particularly in that Jessica I fight is the one everybody draws back um, comparisons to. She can switch levels with those kicks beautifully. She can repeatedly go to the body. By the time she goes up top, man, you're so used to defending those rib cage that there's just nothing that you can do about it. And she's a better wrestler than Murphy, which is the one path I think um, Lauren Murphy might have had to make this fight close at all. With Lauren Murphy, she's the clear number one contender, I think, with five fights in a row, won six of her last seven. I'm, I'm very happy that she's getting this shot because she is just a product of hard work. It's a second opportunity in the UFC. The first one not going the way she wanted, grinded her way through tough, and now grinded her way all the way um, up to a title shot, and I'm, I'm very happy she didn't get skipped here. She's got very good forward pressure, and she knows how to cut the cage off pretty well. And she's patient as well. She really conserves her gas tank. She uses the jab well, and she doesn't waste all a whole lot of energy with anything. She's happy to collect those underhooks, put you up against the fence, grind you that way, and eventually try to mix in a takedown or two if she can. And that's probably what I imagine she's going to try to do here is close that distance, 
put Shevchenko up against the fence, maybe mix in a takedown, and try to ride out a round or two, and, and try to rack up, you know, like some a couple rounds to go to the scorecards. Anytime this is um, on the feet, though, she is just she's playing with fire. Like I've said before, I, I don't feel like Murphy's has much success, man. Um, I, um, I might have spent too much time on this fight already. Um, I think Valentina is the side like normal. She is extremely hard to play with a money line sitting at the best minus 1,100 all the way to minus 2,000. You virtually get zero value there in the money line. Um, so you're going to have to either look at her by decision or by inside the distance. And that's where I'm looking at decision. It's sitting at plus 200, and Murphy's a tough SOB, man. Um, she really is, and I, I really do think she might be able to get to the scorecards and probably lose a 50-45 here. But not only that, if Valentina does find the finish, I think it's going to be later on in this fight. And so you can still grab plus money on Fanduel with Valentina rounds four, five, or decision. So cover three round or you know two rounds and the decision still for plus money. To turn a minus two thousand into plus money, I like it. Um, but her TKO minus one twenty is a little tempting as well, as she is levels above Laura Murphy. In our main event of the evening, the featherweight strap is on the line where we see Alexander Volkanovsky, who's twenty two and one taking on Brian Ortega, who's 15-1. and one. This fight was supposed to take place back at UFC 260. Alexander got um, the COVID situation. Um, he said it took a lot out of him, but man, if you look online, Volkanovski looks to be in absolute killer shape, some of the best shape that I've seen him. Also gave these guys a chance to coach tough, and build the animosity, build up some steam for this one, and ultimately have them headline a, a pay-per-view here. With Volkanovski, you know, he's 22-1, and one, but he was real quietly on the scene just building his way up, and he kind of busted on the scene um, when he took on undefeated prospect in Jeremy Kennedy as the plus 200 dog, and he goes out there and just hands the undefeated Kennedy an ass-whooping. And since then, it, you know, it was only big fights for him where he's pretty much easily um, beaten Elkins, Mendez, and Jose Aldo um, to get two fights with Max Holloway. And, and watching him back, you know, I think the first one right, rightfully should have gone um, to Volkanovski. The second one, the second one is up in the air. But man, it is not a robbery by no means. Um, you know, I've said it multiple times. You got to take it from the champ, and that fight was that fight was too close. And um, I don't hate Volkanovski walking away with the belt. MMA math. You look at that, and and you see he's beaten Max Holloway twice, and you saw what Max Holloway did to Brian Ortega. And I know the rebuttal to that is always going to be. Styles make fights. Yeah, but the Ortega that I saw come out after that layoff is a boxer. We know who the best boxer in the UFC is, and that's Max Holloway. Um, so for Volkanovski to go out there and to, to outstrike um, Max the way he did, Ortega's going to have to make some serious, serious improvements in that time off. Um, I think Volk is the rightful favorite here is what I'm getting at. Volk's always been the shorter fighter as well, which has never been an issue for this guy. He's got a deceptively long reach. He'll work the body on his way in, and when he gets in, he's extremely strong in the clinch. He's happy to be there. He'll collect the underhooks, and he'll put you up against the fence and wear on you. I don't think he's going to mix in any takedowns here as he has in the past. You probably just don't want to play in T-City's guard if you have to, but when this out is feet, Volkanovski's got unreal volume. This guy excuse me, averages over six strikes per minute with a 55% striking accuracy. That is, it's unheard of. Um, he's not going to sit back here and counterbox the way we saw the Korean zombie do. Ortega, 
Um, he's only had one fight, um, you know, since we saw the, him lose that title opportunity to Max Holloway. He was an undefeated prospect coming into then, earned himself a pick by the bookies, and really got shown that he just wasn't you know, ready for that level yet. But I think he did the appropriate thing. He took the time off. He changed gyms, got the right people around him, and he seemed to add some wrinkles to his game, particularly in the striking department. You know, he's the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu poster boy, so it's uh, it's almost like having a wrestling background when you're as good as, as Brian is at Jiu-Jitsu. He's so comfortable on like off his back that he doesn't care if the fight hits the mat. But being so good on the mat also allows you to just work the striking so much in training, and I think that time off we saw um, it was very evident that Brian sharpened up those striking skills and when he came back, he put on a clinic against the Korean Zombie. He added some nice kicks to his game. He had that nice lead hook. And a minute and a half into the fight, he goes out there and switches southpaw and looks just as comfortable. Um, and, you, you know, you can't forget the spinning elbow he lands. Brian 100% made the improvements that he needed to make. I just don't know if it's going to be enough here. And also, you know, I want to address the new relationship with Tracy Cortez as it's always nice to have a woman backing you and stuff like that, but it it seems to have taken a whole lot of his attention, I guess, is the best way to say it. I don't want to say it's taken time away from his training and make that accusation, but it does seem like it's taken a lot of his attention. And just watching Tough, it seemed like Brian had some other obligations um, that he was going to or just didn't really care to be on time for the Tough stuff or his training sessions and I really wasn't a big fan of that because that makes me think that, you know, maybe he's rolling in 15, 20 minutes late to his training sessions as well in the gym. Um, Volkanovski, man, I think he's a good bet on Saturday. I've, I've spent a whole lot of time on this fight. I kind of originally wanted to back um, Brian Ortega as the dog, but I just don't think I can do it. I think if Brian wins, his best chance is going to be to win inside the distance here. And that's sitting at a plus 275, but I think the best chance is probably going to be by submission. I think... Um, Volkanovski has proven that he is a tough dude. We have saw him wobbled once by a head kick, which Brian could look at throwing. But Ortega by sub at plus 650. Very, very talented Gracie Jiu-Jitsu black belt. And I think just to get that line on any of his fights is is a little wild. Um, and I also think there's a chance that he pulls it off. Where we see um, Volk, after he lands that 1-2, oftentimes to the body and then the right hook over top, he oftentimes will continue to crash forward and then try to collect those underhooks and take you back to the fence. I think when he crashes forward, we're going to see Ortega have the opportunities to wrap up that guillotine the way that he did in that Cub fight. So I'm interested in him at sub by plus 650 because I can see that that small area of the fight that he could um, pose a threat to Volkanovski. But I like Volkanovski, um, his cardio here. I like him on the feet a whole bunch. My final decision is going to be with Volkanovski to probably take this one via unanimous decision. I appreciate you tuning in. I know things were a little bit different this week with just myself, um, but as always, I'm going to continue on and give you my um, fight of the night. It, it should be a no-brainer. It's going to be Robbie Lawler versus Nick Diaz. That is the people's main event. That is the casual cap next week. Um, Robbie is never in a boring fight. The guy has so much heart, and it's the return of one of the biggest superstars um, that the UFC has known in Nick Diaz. And um, Man, I can't wait for that fight on Saturday, regardless of how it goes. My fighter to watch is, I think I'm going to go with Marab Devavishvili. He's getting a big step up in competition, and he's got a, um, a significant um, minus 225 line that he's got to live up with. Um, I think he poses a good stylistic approach as where uh, Marlon Marais has to get those kicks off to have success, and Marab's pressure is just not going to allow him to get those off. Um, 
Marib's got a very, very, um, I wouldn't say fan-friendly style, but the style to have a lot of success in the UFC, and he's only going to get harder fights from there. The underdog, man, personally, I think the pay-per-view is going to be full of favorites winning on Saturday. I really do, but Carl Roberson has slipped to plus money on Bet Online at plus 100, and it seems like some more money is coming in on Maximov, so I think um, you just ride it out, and I think Carl Roberson officially is going to hit plus money on a lot of other books. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, Carl Roberson as my official dog on Saturday. And my best bet is going to be a parlay, actually, of Manon Faroe and Jessica Andrade. I really wanted to find a way to parlay Jessica Andrade, and we did on the podcast with Matthew Samuelsberger. So you swipping, swapping out Manon or Samuelsberger, parlaying that with Andrade, I think that's some easy money on Saturday. But there are a couple other bets that I wanted to run through that I really, really like. I like Euros Medic's money line. But Euros Medich first round TKO at plus 400. I think there's some serious value there with all his fights finishing that way. The Marab by decision, I said it earlier, that boy can't finish a happy meal. Um, and now he's getting his best competition to date. I like his style, but I still don't think he's going to be able to find the finish in a three round fight. And Marab decision sitting at plus 110. He can take a big favorite, turn him into plus money, how he normally wins the fight. Samuelsberger inside the distance. That's the reason I chose Manone. And Andrade for the parlay, because you can get Samuelsberger inside the distance around minus 150. Don't mind you hammering that. I think there's a significant uh, talent gap between Samuelsberger and Sano. And Sano's only here because of Nick Diaz, and I think he gets um, his lights put out on Saturday. I don't hate parlaying Blades or Santos. I think both of those are a little bit riskier, as we saw You know, Blades' kryptonite being power, and now he's getting the more most technical kickboxer with that power yet. And Santos, um, you know... She has fought pretty low-level competition, and she's been grinded out by a wrestler before, and that's exactly where Roxy is. I think Blades and Santos wins, but I think they're the the two favorites that are a little bit riskier. Um, Appreciate you guys tuning in. Hop in the um, comment section. Let us know who you guys have in the main event, and see you guys next week.